And the, the, this summer, we're continuing to follow our series um, called, I've Been Meaning to Ask. And these are questions, as we talked about, as we encounter each other in Scripture, I mean, as we encounter each other, as we, well, as we thought we were pulling masks off, and now we're back to wearing masks again. But as we encounter each other in our community, as we do more and more as a community together, these are questions possibly we should be asking our community around us. I have a meaning to ask. And so we first, um, a question today is, what do you need? And so we first read from Second Timothy, and Paul is telling us what he needed. He needed to be his, with his friends, to be with him at the end of his imprisonment, where he, didn't, where he did not live too much longer afterwards. And so we also turn, to help us answer this question, we turn to the cross. And we find Jesus on the cross towards the end of Jesus' life. And this comes from Luke chapter 23, verses 33 through 43. And if you'd like to follow along in your New Testament Bible, you can. I mean, on your pew Bible, you can. It's on page 89 in the New Testament section. I invite you now to listen to, our, to the word of our Lord. When they came to the place that is called the skull, they crucified Jesus there with the criminals, once one on his right and one on his left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots to divide his clothing. And the people stood by watching, but the leaders of the scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself. If he is the Messiah of God, his chosen one. The soldiers, soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offered him some sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There's also an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanging there kept deriding him and, and saying, If you are not the Messiah, save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not, do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed have been condemned justly, for we are getting what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He replied, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Friends, this is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. On January 12, 2010, a 7.0 magnitude earthquake struck Haiti one of the poorest countries in the Western Hemisphere. Earthquakes are destructive and dangerous enough <clears throat> in developed countries, but for a country with, at the time, very few building regulations and sound infrastructures, the risk of deconstruction and casualties increases exponentially. When faced with staggering death tolls and estimated cost of damages to a society that has long endured suffering and national debt, questioning God's presence seemed unavoidable. Some spoke up immediately right after it happened. Celebrity evangelist uh, Pat Robertson offered this response on the 700 Club. He said the earthquake was God's way of punishing the Haitians for making a pact with the devil and a history of practicing voodoo 
in order to escape French enslavement. They deserved it. Now, Robertson has said some controversial things in the past. And perhaps many of us would not agree with all that he says. But before we cast stones, his interpretation of this divine punishment may not be as far from mainstream as we're like to believe. President Obama uh, bore witness to just how deeply ingrained this line of thinking is within our own society uh, when disaster occurs. Speaking of the same earthquake and addressing a recovering effort in Haiti, he said, we stand in solidarity with our neighbors to the south, knowing that, but by the grace of God. Did you catch that? Did you catch that? Knowing by the, but knowing by the grace of God, attributing our country's safety to God's grace. This so happens often after disasters, and it prompts a significant question for us all. If our safety is from the grace of God, then what about those that suffered? Did God not show them any grace? Did they deserve it? Is this all part of God's plan? How about the 4.2 million people and acres, excuse me, acres that burned in the wildfires last year? All those properties that have lost and livelihoods that have lost and lives that have been lost, are that compared to those that have been spared? Was all this part of God's master plan, saving some and not others? How about the 4 million people who died of COVID? Or all the children who have fallen behind in math and reading? compared to those that made it through ICU and all those children that did really well last year in the end of grade testing. How far does God's plans go? How about with mental illness? Is Naomi Osaka being punished, the tennis player, she being punished with mental illness? How about trauma? How does trauma fit into God's plan? How do Christians answer to Simone Biles after what she endured years and years and years at a predator's hands? If God is all-powerful, as we like to say, then why are some people spared and others are not? Perhaps, perhaps we are looking at the wrong place for God's power. Jesus willed a different kind of authority and power than a God that sits way high above all of us, selecting some to be saved and some not to be saved. Jesus displayed a sovereignty of the likes that we have not seen before and we've never seen afterwards. Coming on this on the gospel's text we read today, one New Testament professor said from a, for a dying man, a convicted and confessed thief, these words uttered by the crucified Christ must have caused some sheer of unadulterated ecstasy and some unspeakable joy. 
But how do we get here? With a thief only asking to be remembered. Did you catch it? He said, we remember me. But instead, to be promised paradise by the Savior of the world that is dying right beside him. I had it explained to me by my friend Mark Ramsey at Ministry Collaboration. He said that the Bible uses this text to take us by the hand. And it gives us the most surprising news. Jesus Christ is highest and is a ruler of all and has to suffer awfully. Here's the hard part of that news. Once we recognize this news, this is the beginning of the wisdom of the rest of our lives and the destination of experiencing God in the world that we live in. As Christians, this is difficult for us to accept because this means that we have to be to fully accept that Jesus was both fully God and fully human. And if Jesus is fully human, then the pain that he experienced affected him from, the, from all the way down to the bottom of his core. Being fully human means that Jesus' life ended in a way that he did not want it to end. Being fully human means that Jesus did not always know what exactly was going to happen to him next. Years ago, a BBC reporter interviewed an American television preacher. The preacher stated that Jesus was the most successful religious leader of all time. And not only that, he said, not only that, he was probably the most successful leader of any kind of all time. Jesus, Jesus, he said, he said, Jesus began in obscurity and poverty and despair, and today his followers outnumber all the other followers in the world. Just consider, this is astonishing. But I thought he ended up on the cross, the reporter asked. Oh, no, said the preacher. The cross is just something that Jesus had to endure, and successful persons have occasional hardships. But he rose from the dead. He overcame the cross. He put it all behind him. It was just a bump in the road. Now, even if we would not say it just like that, or should say it just like that preacher says it, that's a pretty attractive way of looking at the cross. Jesus endured the cross. He overcame the cross. Eh, it was just a bump in the road. Conversely, it's much harder to imagine that the cross was not what Jesus was hoping for in the midst of his faithful ministry. We often say in church that the cross was God's plan or that it was necessary. The cross was necessary in order for God's wrath to be appeased, for God demanded blood for blood. I did not understand that concept in seminary when it was introduced to me, and I still have a hard time wrapping my head around that. What kind of God? What kind of, what kind of God would will the death of God's only child? What kind of God 
would get so vengeful that only blood would satisfy that God. Theologian Dorothy Soleil calls this seductive theology. According to Soleil, if the God you worship actually wanted Jesus to die, that's like worshiping the executor. That does not sound much like the God that Jesus talked about throughout all of Jesus' ministry. There's a pastor that after graduating seminary got a call from a really small congregation in a, in a really small town. There are about 30 families in this church, and she set out a goal to visit every single family within the first six months of her time being there. As her six months was closing, she had almost done it. She almost visited every single family. There's just one family left, and she was told, don't bother, they're never coming back. Ignoring these words, the young minister drove out to the couple's house. The wife was home. The wife invited her in. She made her some coffee, and they talked about this, and they talked about that, and then they talked about it. Two years earlier, the wife was at home with the young son. She was vacuuming in the back bedroom. She had not checked on him for a while. And so she went into the den, and she didn't find him. And so she followed the trail through the den, through the patio doors, across the patio to the swimming pool, where she found him. At the funeral, our friends at the church were just very kind. They told us this was God's will. The minister put her cup down on the table. Should she touch it? Did she touch it? He touched it. Your friends meant well, the young pastor said, but they were wrong. God does not will the death of children. The woman's face red and the jaw got firm. Then who do you blame? Who do you blame? Do you blame me? No. I don't blame you. I, 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 don't, I don't blame God. I can't explain it. I only know that God's heart broke first and fastest when it happened. The woman had her arms crossed. Eyes were locked in. It's clear the conversation was over. Driving back to the church, this young pastor was kicking herself. Why, why, you know, why didn't I just let it alone? Why did I have to touch it? Several days later, the phone rang. It was the wife. We do not know where this is leading, but my husband and I would like for you to come out to the house. For all this time, we thought God was mad at us. But maybe it was the other way around. Barbara Brown Taylor describes a cross not as something God desired, but something that God suffered. To understand the cross, that God suffered with Jesus, and that God suffered with us, is to experience humanity like, 
we've never experienced all the way down to our core. If we do that, we have to bring our own suffering with us. We need to bring the suffering of the world to the cross. Then, and only then, can we talk about Jesus' suffering. Then we can wonder about his redemptive words to the thief on the cross. Then we can understand how Paul's friends would drop everything to be with him in his last days in prison. Then we can understand how it can be that Jesus, despite all the appearances, that Jesus is the ruler of all and suffers on the cross. When it's met with our own suffering and the suffering of this world, we are then able to look a little bit closer and know that thief nor Paul died alone. But Jesus was right beside both of them, eye to eye, on their respective crosses. We do not suffer alone. God suffers with us. We are never imprisoned alone. God walks beside us. This, my friend Mark said, that is the beginning of the wisdom of our lives. This is a destination of experiencing God in this world. And all that starts right here in worship. Here in this room, it's where we learn to be so vulnerable with God and with one another. Where not only the Holy Spirit teaches us how to bring our own suffering with us and the suffering of the world to the cross, but where we invite those that are suffering to sit right next to us. Elaine Baggles is a professor at Princeton University. She's not a seminary professor, but she's a professor of humanities. Um, and she knows a lot about human phenomenon and religion. Her specialty is early Christianity. She is not a particularly a church person. In fact, she has pretty much given up on the church as an institution worthy of what she says of her time and her attention. Not unlike many people in my generation. But she began a book that she wrote a few years ago called Beyond Belief with an unusual, for her specifically, antidote and a very powerful witness at the same time. One bright, cold Sunday morning in New York, she writes, she was interrupted by her daily run by stopping in a vestibule of an Episcopal church to get warm. Two days earlier, her two-and-a-half-year-old son had been diagnosed with a fatal lung disease. Since I had not been in church for a long time, I was startled by my response to the worship in progress. The soaring harmonies of the choir singing with the congregation and the priest, a woman in bright gold and white investments, claiming the prayers 
in a clear and resonant voice. As I stood watching, a thought came to me. Here's a family that knows how to face death. Standing there, I recalled the day after that we heard about John's diagnosis. And that we, he only had just a few months, maybe a couple years at the most, to live. And there the team of doctors urged us to authorize a lung biopsy, a, a painful, invasive procedure on this little boy. How could this help? It can't, they explained. But the procedure would let them know how far the disease had progressed. John had already exalted, been exhausted from the previous day's ordeal. Holding him, I just felt that if any more strangers with masks on poke needles in this little boy's in some operating room without me right there beside him, he would just lose heart and literally die right there. We refused the biopsy. We gathered John's blanket, his clothes, and his Peter Rabbit and went home. Standing in the back of the church, I recognized uncomfortability that I needed to be there. Here was a place to weep without imposing my tears on a little boy. Here is a heterogeneous community that gathered to sing, to celebrate, to acknowledge common needs, and to deal with what we cannot control and what we cannot imagine. What if? What if the cross was not God's plan? But yet, God still used it to bring new life. The power of the cross is that it did not stop God's promises. The promise of God's love, the promise of God's covenant to you and to me, the promise of God's grace and mercy and forgiveness and reconciliation, the promise of heaven and earth coming together, the promise of God's love. What if? And I believe this. What if the place to find Jesus, the place that we should go looking for Jesus, is following the cross? Not just any cross. Every cross. Your cross. I believe that that is where we will find Jesus. That you'll find Jesus wherever someone is dying or dead or imprisoned or just hoping to be remembered. Wherever that hurt, scared, dead place in your heart may be, there is Jesus. Wherever that dark, scared place in our community, there is Jesus. That's where you will find our Savior. 
the one that is eye to eye with anyone who suffers. And that is the place, the cross, along with Jesus and our own suffering and the suffering of the world, that we can even begin to dare ask anyone the question, what do you need? 